If you would, let's uh, take our Bibles again, and we'll open them back up once again to the book of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes. I would direct your attention, though, to the very first chapter of Ecclesiastes. Uh, I trust God will make as precious to you and as meaningful to you and as important to you as He has to me uh, this portion of God's Word, not just in the 12th chapter that Justin read earlier or in the first chapter from which I'm going to read today, but all of this tremendous book found here in the Bible, in the Scriptures, the book of Ecclesiastes. We're going to be for my text this morning in chapter 1, and I've entitled this message, Words of Great Wisdom words of great wisdom. So if you would look with me, I want to read, if I could, uh, verses uh, 1 through verse 18 this morning of uh, chapter 1 of Ecclesiastes, and uh, that will take us to the beginning of chapter 2. So we're going to read the entire first chapter and then come back to my text, which is found in the very first verse of uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 1. So look with me here in your Bible as I read from mine. The words of the preacher. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. What advantage does man have in all his work? which he does under the sun. A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. Also, the sun rises and the sun sets, and hastening to its place, it rises there again, blowing toward the south, then turning toward the north, the winds continues, the wind continues swirling along, and on its circular courses, the wind returns. All the rivers flow into the sea, yet the sea is not full. To the place where the rivers flow, there they flow again. All things are wearisome. Man is not able to tell it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor is the ear filled with hearing. That which has been is that which will be, and that which has been done is that which will be done. So there is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which one might say, See this, it is new? Already it has existed for ages which were before us. There is no remembrance of earlier things, and also of the latter things which will recur, which will occur, there will be for them no remembrance among those who will come later still. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem. And I set my mind to seek and to explore by wisdom concerning all that has been done under heaven. It is a grievous task which God has given to the sons of men to be afflicted with. I have seen all the works which have been done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and striving after wind. What is crooked cannot be straightened, and what is lacking cannot be counted. I said to myself, Behold, I have magnified 
and increased wisdom more than all who were over Jerusalem before me, and my mind has observed a wealth of wisdom and knowledge. And I set my mind to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I realized that this also is striving after wind. Because in much wisdom there is much grief, and increasing knowledge results in increasing pain. Go back, if you would, with me now for once again the reading of our text, which is found, as I said, in verse 1. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Would you bow with me in prayer, please? Dear gracious Heavenly Father, with joy and an understanding of unworthiness in and of ourselves, but yet with joy because of the access we have to the very throne of God in and through our Redeemer, our Savior, the Lord Jesus. Oh, Father, we bow in your presence in his name, thanking you for this time you've given us once again to congregate, <clears throat> to come together as your children, to worship you, to adore you, to give you praise, to, to seek to give you honor, to seek to give you the glory that's due unto your name, to worship you in the beauty of holiness. Oh, Father, we're so thankful for the privilege and the honor that you've blessed us with because of Christ, your Son and our Savior, and what he's done for us. <clears throat> this morning, as we bow before you, Father, we ask that you would make your word real to us, a living, powerful word uh, from you to your children. Speak to our hearts. Oh, Lord, how desperately we need to hear you speak. Lord, speak that which we need to know and understand that would make us more of what you'd have us to be, to enable us to be more of the witness and the testimony to those around us of your amazing grace, your goodness, your mercy to those who are so undeserving. So, Lord, we commit this time into your hands and pray that your name would be honored. And Lord, once again, <clears throat> I ask for your help. For Lord, apart from you, I'm helpless. Lord, I'm not sufficient for these things. And I just trust that even as the scripture has spoken to me and revealed to us, that my sufficiency is not of myself, it's of you. And so I trust that you might undertake on my behalf here this morning as I seek to honor and glorify your name through the preaching of your word. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' precious and holy name I pray. Amen. Words of great wisdom. How long has it been uh, since you read the book of Ecclesiastes? I'm not asking you to go ahead and answer that audibly or whatever, but think about it. How long has it been since you read the book of Ecclesiastes? You know, you perhaps are somewhat like me. I, I know that, uh, you know, if I don't have a certain 
portion of scripture that I'm reading through or something of a morning, if I get up some morning and just want to read some scripture, my mind probably does not go to the book of Ecclesiastes. And yours may not either. You know, it's not one of those books that uh, we, th- we think on the surface that we find a lot of great encouraging words in or that which will lift us up and, uh, and strengthen us and enable us to be more of what God would have us to be. No, you know, we'll go to the Psalms or, or we'll go to uh, the epistles of the Apostle Paul or, or so many other portions of Scripture, but rarely do many of us turn to the book of Ecclesiastes. It is a little bit different in some regards uh, than many uh, other portions of Scripture, but all of recent days, I found it to be a wealth, a wealth from the storehouse of God. And I'm coming to the place of thinking that perhaps the book of Ecclesiastes is one of the most important portions of God's Word. So we need to give some thought to it. We need to give some consideration to it. Because God has placed it here in His Word for a purpose. We need to find what that purpose is. And pray that God would apply to our hearts the instruction that is so filled with. Perhaps we should begin this morning by simply defining... (laughs) the title of this book, Ecclesiastes. If I were to ask some of you this morning to define the word Ecclesiastes for me, uh, would you be able to give a quick answer to that? I wasn't able. I mean, there are other words that came to mind that uh, have the same root. Uh, Ecclesia, that's Greek for the church called out ones, those who are called out and gathered together as God's people, ecclesia, that's one of those words. And there are others that that came to my mind, but as far as being able to just define Ecclesiastes, I was struggling with that. I was having difficulty with that. And so I began to search and I began to look for a definition. I even turned to Google, you know, and looked for a definition of Ecclesiastes. wasn't fully satisfied with a lot of what I read uh, on the Internet about it. And I've come to the conclusion as I studied and as I searched uh, not only the scripture but uh, some of the things that are written by men that I feel God has been pleased to use in a great way in my life at other times that perhaps the definition of Ecclesiastes is found right here in my text this morning, verse 1. The first part of that verse, the words of the preacher. The words of the preacher. You see, Ecclesiastes comes from a Hebrew word, koheleth. The word koheleth in Hebrew, and it means convener. You know, we know what that word means. Sometimes we uh, uh, convene uh, a group to discuss certain things or whatever. Uh, and so it comes from this koheleth that means convener. It means collector. Collector. It means also gatherer. Gatherer. And in the context uh, of, of this portion of God's Word here, the book of Ecclesiastes, as we consider not just these words, but the entirety of the book, uh, that would be the context in which 
Our text is found at the very beginning here this morning of the book. Uh, in the context, Koaleth, or preacher, is one in whom is gathered great knowledge and wisdom. One in whom is gathered great knowledge and wisdom. In Ecclesiastes here, the first chapter, verses 1 and 2, uh, we see that the author of the book begins, The words of the preacher, the son of David, vanity of vanities, says the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Verse 12 says, we see it again, I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem. We can turn to the very last chapter where Justin read for us at the beginning of the hour the 12th chapter of uh, Ecclesiastes. And we could look here at verse 9 and we see it again. In addition to being a wise man, the preacher also taught the people knowledge and he pondered, searched out, and arranged many proverbs. Uh, In these words that I just read, the author identifies himself as the preacher. The preacher. Now... A good or best, I believe, explanation of what we're considering here this morning is that the author called himself Koheleth, or preacher, because he personified wisdom and that wisdom spoke through him. He gathered unto himself much knowledge and wisdom as it was given to him, as it was bestowed upon him, uh, this knowledge and this wisdom. He gathered this unto himself, and he actually came to the point of personifying wisdom, and that, that that wisdom actually spoke through him. Perhaps you'll recall uh, in the book of Proverbs chapter 8, where we find an entire chapter in the book of Proverbs that deals with the subject of wisdom. Their wisdom is personified. We see wisdom being spoken of as, uh, uh, as a person. Uh, wisdom is speaking there in the 8th chapter of Proverbs. And if you look closely enough and spend some time and weigh and meditate upon that 8th chapter of Proverbs, you'll come to the conclusion, I think, as as many others have, that wisdom in the 8th chapter of Proverbs is a reference to the Messiah, to the Christ, whom we know from the New Testament to be the Lord Jesus Himself. Wisdom. Wisdom. So who is this preacher? Who is this preacher in whom wisdom is gathered together and speaks to us as we have it here in the Word of God. Who is this preacher? Well, he calls himself here in verse 1, the son of David, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. And in verse 12, he again repeats it somewhat, adding one thing. He says, I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem, indicating that he is king over all of God's people, becoming a type Is it not a picture of one who is the king over all of God's people? Turn with me, if you would, to 1 Kings. Let's go back to 1 Kings for just a little bit. 
the third chapter of 1 Kings. 1 Kings chapter 3, beginning with verse 5. Bear with me as I read several verses here from 1 Kings. I think it's important as we seek to understand and know who it is that's writing this book called Ecclesiastes, who calls himself the preacher. Uh, look with me at verse 5 of 1 Kings chapter 3 and following. In Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream at night, and God said, Ask what you wish me to give you. Now you see perhaps where some of the fairy tales about the... Uh, the lamp and the, the uh, genie that comes out of the lamp when the lamp is rubbed comes in that genie, uh, you know, tells the one that freed him from the, uh, the lamp, you know, well, just ask what you will or whatever I'll give you. Well, that's a fairy tale. This is not. This is reality. This is a fact. This is historical. This is something that happened. God came to Solomon and asked him, told him, ask what you will and I will give it to you. Solomon said, You have shown great loving kindness to your servant David, my father, according as he walked before you in truth and righteousness and uprightness of heart toward you. And you have reserved for him this great loving kindness that you have given him a son to sit on his throne as it is this day. Now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king in the place of my father David, yet I am but a little child. Not only was Solomon perhaps indicating to us here that he was not, a, not an old person, he was a young person still, but even in his understanding, he considered himself to be a mere child, a mere child. He says, I do not know how to go out or come in, your servant is in the midst of your people which you have chosen, a great people who are too many to be numbered or counted. So give your servant an understanding heart to judge your people, to discern between good and evil. For who is able to judge this great people of yours? We continue with verse 10. It was pleasing in the sight of the Lord that Solomon asked this thing. And so God said to him, Because you have asked this thing and have not asked for yourself long life, nor have asked riches for yourself, nor have you asked for the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself discernment to understand justice, behold, I have done according to your words. Behold, I have given you a wise and discerning heart, so that there has been no one like you before you, nor shall one like, uh, like you arise after you. I have also given you what you have not asked, both riches and honor, so that there will not be any among the kings like you all of your days. Now then, if you would look with me as we turn over a little further here in First Kings to chapter 4, beginning with verse 29. And listen to what the Scripture tells us here. Now God gave Solomon wisdom and very great discernment and breadth of mind like the sand that is on the seashore. Did you hear what it said there? God gave Solomon wisdom and very great discernment like breadth, uh, and breadth of mind like the sand that is on the seashore. 
Now that tells us right there that it was not just wisdom and discernment regarding spiritual things, if you will, that God gave to Solomon. He gave him wisdom in regard to all things, everything. Uh, wildlife, animal life, plant life, all of these things. Well, let's go on and read this. It says, uh, Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all the sons of the east and all the wisdom of Egypt. For he was wiser than all men, than Ethan, the Ezrahite, Heman, Calcol, and Darda, the sons of Mahal. And his fame was known in all the surrounding nations. He also spoke 3,000 proverbs, and his songs were 1,005. Well, we know one of the songs, don't we? Song of Solomon, recorded right here for us, following the book of Ecclesiastes. 3,000 proverbs and songs, 1,005. He spoke of trees, from the cedar that is in Lebanon, even to the hyssop that grows on the wall. He spoke also of animals and birds and creeping things and fish. Men came from all peoples to hear the wisdom of Solomon from all the kings of the earth who had heard of his wisdom. My. My. I think we can undoubtedly or safely say that from what we read here and the way our text speaks to us, that uh, undoubtedly Solomon is the author of Ecclesiastes, or at least he is the one whom God used to write these words that we have before us here this morning. Uh, Now some, when you converse with them about the book of Ecclesiastes and Perhaps ask them, as I ask you this morning, how long has it been since you read Ecclesiastes? Well, if, if we would go on and ask the question, well, what did you get out of it? Well, it's interesting. It's an interesting book. <laughs> well, I tell you, it is interesting. And, and my interest has been captured the last two or three weeks by what I've seen in the book of Ecclesiastes. But to some, the easy way to answer that question, well, it's interesting, it's interesting. Others will say, uh, well, the book is certainly intriguing. Well, it is that, uh, for sure, because it contains several complex mysteries. Uh, There are some things here that... uh, you, you can't come to really grasp by just a haphazard reading of the book of Ecclesiastes. You've got to think about it. You've got to mull it over in your mind. You've got to meditate on it. You've got to pray that God will open the eyes of your understanding to grasp what Solomon is telling us here in the book of Ecclesiastes. And it is true that it's an interesting book. It's an intriguing book. But much, much more important than those things is the fact that it is instructive in a superlative way. And by that word superlative, I mean to the utmost degree. It is instructive to the utmost degree or in a superlative way. Way. 
Why is that? Why is it that we can say, and that I can say without any hesitation uh, at all, that the book of Ecclesiastes is instructive in a, a superlative way? Well, the answer to that is very simple. It's because it's inspired. It is God-breathed. As a portion of the scripture, as a portion of God's word, it is a God-breathed word. It is a word that God actually breathed into the heart and soul and mind of this man Solomon and had him record it for our benefit, for our, for our instruction, for our instruction. You'll recall, I'm sure, what Paul told Timothy. Perhaps we should just turn there and look at this in 2 Timothy, the third chapter, about inspiration. 2 Timothy, chapter 3. Well, let's begin with verse 15 and consider this together as we think about uh, the book of uh, Ecclesiastes that we're considering this morning and the words of the preacher uh, being uh, words of great wisdom for us. Uh, consider what Paul says uh, here in Second Timothy chapter 3 and verse 15 and following. He says to Timothy, he says, Timothy, from a child or from childhood, you have known the sacred writings. Well, the sacred writings are what we have in this book before us here this morning that we're considering together, the scripture, the sacred writings. Timothy, from childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. And then he goes on. All Scripture is inspired by God or all Scripture is God-breathed and profitable. It's for our benefit to teach us, to reprove us, to correct us, to train us in righteousness so that we, or as the scripture says, so that the man of God may be adequate or complete. I believe the authorized or King James Version says perfect. It means complete. It means adequate. It means all that we should be. The scripture is given us so that we might be adequate, equipped for every good work. Equipped for every good work. That's what the scripture does. Makes us wise unto salvation. And all of these other things that Paul told Timothy. Uh, the scripture is God breathed. So this precious book of scripture that we're considering this morning. The book of Ecclesiastes being a part of the Bible. Being a part of the scripture. Being one of the sacred writings that we have in the Bible is for us everything that Paul said the Scripture would be if we seek to understand, if we trust the Lord to make it known to us. Inspiration makes all of Scripture or the Bible infinitely, infinitely more valuable than all other books combined. Look with me back to Ecclesiastes chapter 12, where Justin read at the beginning of the hour. Perhaps you noticed this as he read. If not, we're going to take a peek at it again here for just a moment. 
bearing in mind what I just said, that inspiration makes all of Scripture infinitely more valuable than all of the books combined. Look at Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verses 9 through 12, if you would. In addition to being a wise man, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, and he pondered and searched out and arranged many proverbs. The preacher sought to find delightful words to write words of truth correctly. The words of wise men are like goads, and masters of these collections are like well-driven nails. They are given by one shepherd. The words of wise men, such as what we find here in the book of Ecclesiastes, this wise man Solomon, the, the man that God enabled to gather in himself such a high degree of knowledge and wisdom. Words from men like this are like goads. Or in other words, they're like uh, the prod that the, uh, uh, the farmer would use behind the oxen to goad him, to, uh, to press him on, uh, in the furrow down the field making the furrows uh, from which he hoped to plant seed and, and see a, a, a harvest. Goads. Masters of these collections are like well-driven nails from the one shepherd. In other words, when words of wisdom settle into our heart, they are fastened there by the shepherd who gave them. Just like nails fasten something securely. All the other books combined don't even begin to compare to what we have in God's book. In God's book. Being inspired by the one shepherd spoken of there in verse 11. The instruction found in Ecclesiastes is not worldly wisdom or worldly knowledge. Settle that in your mind right now. The words of the preacher, what we find here in the book of Ecclesiastes, is not worldly wisdom. It is not worldly knowledge. Not at all. But is, on the other hand, otherworldly. Not worldly, but otherworldly. What do we mean by that? It's from above. It's from above. Turn with me to the book of James, if you would. James, the uh, third chapter. James chapter 3. Perhaps uh, you're familiar with these words that James wrote. If I can get my fingers to work and, and all, I'll get there in a little bit. In James chapter 3. Beginning with verse 13. James says, Who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show by his good behavior his deeds in gentleness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. This wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but is earthly or worldly, natural, demonic, for where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder and every evil thing. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, 
reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering, without hypocrisy. And the seed whose fruit is sown in righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. There is a difference. A difference uh, in which the separation is as great as the east is from the west. There is that much difference between the wisdom of the world and the wisdom that is from above. Perhaps you recall what James said a little bit earlier in his epistle in the first chapter in verse 5. Where James says there, if any man lacks wisdom, or if anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all men liberally. Who gives to all men liberally. Freely does he do so. Now is it that it reads here, but if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all generously, and without reproach, and it will be given to him. It will be given to him. It's interesting in relation to this, what the Apostle Paul said as he was writing to the Corinthians, his first letter to them, or the first letter that we have recorded in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 1. We'll turn there and look at this if we could. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses, uh, I believe, 14 through 25. I must have written down the wrong reference here. No, no, it's verse 18 through 25. I'm sorry. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since the wisdom of God for since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For indeed, Jews seek for a sign and Greeks search for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified to Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God stronger than men. James said, if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all men generously. That is exactly what Solomon did, is it not? He realized he lacked wisdom, and he asked for it. And as we read there in the fourth chapter of First Corinthians, First Kings, rather, God gave him great wisdom, great wisdom, far greater than any other man on the face of the earth. So great was his wisdom that men, kings, and 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 wise men from all over, perhaps the known world, came to sit at Solomon's feet 
and listen to him speak about all these various things in which God had given him such great wisdom. Solomon asked God for wisdom and God gave it. Well, the theme of the book of Ecclesiastes is found in verse 2 of chapter 1. The vanity of all things under the sun or under heaven. Chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, our text, the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem, verse 2, vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Verses 12 through 15, I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem, and I set my mind to seek and explore with the wisdom concerning all that has been done under heaven. It is a grievous task which God has given to the sons of men to be afflicted with. I've seen all the works which have been done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and striving after wind. What is crooked cannot be straightened, and what is lacking cannot be counted. Well, he went on to say, I said to myself, Behold, I have magnified and increased wisdom more than all who were over Jerusalem before me, and my mind has observed a wealth of wisdom and knowledge. And I set my mind to no wisdom and to no madness and folly. I realized that this also is striving after wind. Because in much wisdom there's much grief. And increasing knowledge results in increasing pain. Well, some, when they pick up the scripture, and for one reason or another, turn to the book of Ecclesiastes and begin reading, they don't get any further than what I just read. Huh. Well, this is discouraging. This is downright depressing. Why would I want to go on and read this? And it can be, and it is, if you understand what Solomon is saying and why. It is discouraging. It is de 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 depressing. But what we've got to understand is Solomon is being directed by the Spirit of God and would have us seek for joy and satisfaction and contentment not in the things of this world. If you seek for joy, if you seek for satisfaction, if you seek to be content based upon what this world has to offer you, you are going to be discouraged sooner or later and perhaps even in great distress. Now, there are some of us here this morning who can vouch for that as being a reality. This world doesn't satisfy. This world doesn't give contentment. This world doesn't give you real joy. When I was thinking about this, I was reminded of John Bunyan's book, Pilgrim's Progress. I thought I'd just share with you just a few words from this this morning, pilgrim or Christian, who is the pilgrim, and a friend, uh, I believe it was faithful, were on their way uh, toward the celestial city. And they happened to come to a town called Vanity. And there was a fair that was regularly held there in the town of Vanity called Vanity Fair. Vanity Fair. And the scripture tell or the scripture that... <laughs> 
Pilgrim's Progress. I could almost say scripture, I guess, in some regards, because some have said that if you prick Bunyan anywhere, he would bleed Bibline or Bible. He was so full of scripture. But this is not scripture. This is an allegory wherein a man begins a journey from the city of destruction to uh, the celestial city. And he's on his journey, and he's traveling with a companion by the name of Faithful. And they come to Vanity Fair. And I'll read you just a little bit of this as uh, they begin to question these men or think about these men, the folks in Vanity Fair did. And they said, but that which did not little amuse the merchandisers was that these pilgrims set very light by all their wares. They cared not so much as to look upon them. If they called upon them to buy, they would put their fingers in their ears and cry, Turn away mine eyes from beholding vanity, and look upward, signifying that their trade and traffic was in heaven. One chanced mockingly, beholding the carriages of the men, to say unto them, What will you buy? But they, looking gravely upon him, said, We buy the truth. We buy the truth. Well, this world is truly vanity fair. And my look at how appealing the things that vanity fair has are to us. Our old nature is attracted to these things. Our old nature desires these old these things. Our old sinful man revels in these things, lusts after these things, desires these things, lives for these things. And is gratified by these things. But the new man, the new man, the Christian, the believer, who's been made alive unto God and given eyes to see the kingdom of God and all that awaits the child of God, these things mean nothing. These things do not satisfy. There is no joy, there is no contentment, there is no satisfaction in the in vanity fair and all that it has to offer. And yes, if you very lightly and carelessly pick up the Bible and turn to the book of Ecclesiastes and begin to read, you'll find very shortly that, well, this is discouraging, this is depressing, I'll not read any further. But oh, if we could but see and understand that the Spirit of God in Solomon is directing him to write these things to cause us to see that the world has nothing to offer the Christian that's meaningful, helpful, or good. We'll not satisfy. We'll not satisfy. But rather, we are to turn our eyes upward from this world. The Apostle Paul dealt with this so clearly as he wrote a letter to the church at Colossae. In the book of Colossians, the third chapter, if you'd care to look at this with me, Colossians chapter 3, just uh, oh, the first four verses we'll share together here this morning. Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. Here the Apostle Paul says, Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, in other words, if you're a believer, if you're a Christian, if you're a child of God, if you've been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above. Not the things around here, not the things in this world, not what this earth and its 
pleasures has to offer the world. Keep seeking things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with Him in glory. This is what the believer waits for. This is what the the child of God lives his life for. An eternity in the presence of God. Seated there at God's right hand with Christ. Can you imagine? Can you imagine? (laughs) Oh, that we might, as we consider the book of Ecclesiastes, realize that this is what Solomon is doing. Seeking to direct our eyes from the things of this world and focus upon the things of God as they're made known unto us in the scripture. Things that are above. And the Apostle Paul would also say, as I'm sure you're familiar in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 58, Be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor in the Lord or your toil in the Lord is not in vain. It's not vain. There's no vanity to be experienced in doing that which is in the Lord and of the Lord and for the glory of God. Be steadfast, be immovable, always abounding in these things for Such is not in vain in the Lord. Well, turn once again with me, if you would, to the last chapter of Ecclesiastes. We'll begin to uh, wrap this up, if we can, this morning. The last chapter of Ecclesiastes, chapter 12. What we're going to find here in chapter 12 obviously, is where the words of the preacher are leading us to. This is where he's taking us, all right? We didn't have time to look at all the chapters between chapter 1 and chapter 12. Perhaps if God wills, we'll come back another time. There is such a wealth, such a wealth to be found all throughout this book. But it's clear to me, and I trust will be clear to you as well, that as he begins to write in chapter 1, saying the words of the preacher, where these words are going to take us as to what we're going to read right now in the last chapter of this book, beginning with verse 9. In addition to being a wise man, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, and he pondered, searched out, and arranged many proverbs. The preacher sought to find delightful words to write, words of truth correctly. The words of wise men are like goads and masters, of these collections are like well-driven nails that are given by one shepherd. But beyond this, my son, be warned. Beyond this, be warned. The writing of many books is endless. And excessive devotion to books, plural, is wearying to the body. The conclusion. The conclusion. This is where he's leading. Right here. When all has been heard, when all the words of the preacher have been heard, been thought upon, mulled over, meditated upon, considered uh, with a prayer in the heart for understanding from the Lord above, the conclusion when all has been heard is fear God 
and keep his commandments because this applies to every person. Our authorized version says this is the whole duty of man. The authorized version, King James, this is the whole duty of man. It applies to every person. Fear God and keep his commandments. For God will bring every act to judgment. Everything which is hidden, whether it's good or it's evil. God will judge sin. And when that last great day appears and we stand before the judgment seat of Christ, God is going to judge us based upon what Christ has done for us and how God poured out His righteous judgment upon Christ on our behalf. Or He'll judge us based upon our own works rather than Christ's. Fear God. Fear God. And obey Him. Fear God. Keep His commandments. But would you consider with me the importance of the fear of God as it relates to this matter of knowledge and wisdom? Turn with me to something else Solomon wrote back in the book of Proverbs. Two verses I want to share with you. One from chapter 1 of Proverbs, verse 7. Verse 7 of chapter 1 of Proverbs. Here, Solomon, speaking here, saying, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. If we were to turn to chapter 9 and verse 10 of Proverbs, Chapter 9, verse 10. Here we see the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Now that word beginning means literally chief parts. It's the chief parts. I believe in my uh, King James Bible that I used to preach from, if you look in the margin there, you'll find a, a little note that will even say that the word beginning actually means chief parts. That's the literal uh, interpretation of the Hebrew. Chief parts. What are the chief parts? Well, when I began school in the first grade, didn't have kindergarten where I went to school. When I began school, the first things that I can remember my teacher beginning to teach me were the numbers, 1 through 10, and the ABCs. Why is that? They're the chief parts. They're the chief parts. Everything else I was ever to learn from that point on in school was based upon what? The chief parts. The chief parts. The numbers, if it was the sciences, math, or the sciences, whatever, numbers were greatly involved, but also what? Words, words that are made up of what? Letters of the alphabet, the chief parts. That's what the fear of the Lord is when it comes to knowledge and wisdom. If you miss that, 
If you don't have the fear of God, then you don't have the chief parts. You're missing out. But what is it? If it's that important, what is the fear of God? Well, in the scripture, the word fear is used in a couple of different ways. One of those ways is uh, a fear of dread and terror. The fear of dread and terror. I wish we had time this morning. I wish we could just spend about another 30, 40 minutes looking at this this morning, considering the fear of dread and terror. Uh, we'll come back sometime and look at this. Uh, I know we've looked at it before, but it's, it's worthy of being reviewed time and again because of its importance. But there is a fear of dread and terror, a real fear, terrifying thing uh, of God. But there is also a fear of veneration, respect, reverence, and awe. And this is the type of fear that Solomon is talking about in chapter 12 of, of Ecclesiastes when he says, fear God and keep his commandments. Revere Him. Show Him veneration. Respect Him. Reverence Him. Stand in awe of who God is and what God is like. This kind of fear, the lost and the unregenerate man does not have. He certainly can have the fear of dread and terror. But not the fear of veneration and respect, and reverence. Not that which, when seeing God, causes us to be in awe before Him. So where does one get such a thing? How does it come about? If we had time, we'd look at the book of Jeremiah, chapter 32, where Jeremiah is talking about the new covenant. The new covenant that is God is going <coughs> to make with his people such that he would call them his children and we could call him our father. And he says in that passage of scripture in Jeremiah chapter 32 begin with verses 36 through 42, one of the things he says is, I will put fear of me in their hearts. So where does one get this fear of God that Solomon is talking about when he says, fear God and keep His commandments, where does it come from? God says, I will give it to my people. I will put it in their hearts. How does He do that? How does He do that? Well, we could go to the very next book in the Old Testament, the book of Ezekiel, chapter 36, where we find a portion of Scripture there that so clearly talks about the subject of regeneration, the new birth, how that we need to be given a new heart and a new life, how that, that old heart needs to be removed from us and, and we need to be given a new heart and God's Spirit then would be placed within us uh, as a result of that. That's regeneration. That's the new birth. That's the quickening. That's being made alive unto God. We who are dead in our sins being made alive by the grace of God and the power of His Spirit in order that we what? Might have what God said He would give all of His children. One of which is what? The fear of Him. The fear of Him. Reverence 
respect, honor, seeing him in awe for who he really is. Regeneration has many fruits. There are many fruits that spring out of regeneration. The seed of fruit is planted in the heart of one who is made alive unto God. The seed of all fruit is planted in the heart of one who is made alive unto God. But some of that fruit is harvested earlier than others. And some of the first things that are harvested are, of course, faith and repentance. But along with that comes what? The fear of God. The fear of God. God puts His fear in our hearts. And He says the result of this will be, I'll be your God, you'll be my people. I'll be your Father, you'll be my children. What an amazing thing. And so what are we to take from this? What are we to take from this? Well, let me close by asking you to turn with me to 2 Corinthians, first of all, chapter 6. 2 Corinthians, chapter 6. Beginning with verse 16. And we find here exactly the same thing that we saw in Jeremiah 32 and Ezekiel 36. Verse 16 of 2 Corinthians 6, What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God, just as God said, I will dwell in them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore come out from, them, uh, from their midst and be separate, saith the Lord, and do not touch what is unclean, and I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the, Almighty, the Lord Almighty. Verse 1 of chapter 7, Therefore... Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Having such promises, we must live our lives in the fear of God. In the fear of God. Peter puts it like this in 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 17 through 25. If you address the Father, if you address as Father, the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life, uh, inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood, as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. For he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you who through him are believers in God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Peter goes on to verse 25, saying, Since you have in obedience, in a, in obedience to the truth purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart, 
For you've been born again, not of seed, which is perishable, but imperishable. That is through the living and enduring word of God. For all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls off, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word which was preached to you. The words of the preacher. The words of the preacher. Koheleth. Words of wisdom that God gathered up and put in the heart of this man Solomon. And that we find all throughout the scripture. Not just in Solomon's writings. But all throughout the scripture. Wisdom that is from above. Wisdom that is from God himself. One other verse let me share with you. One other couple of verses from the book of Revelation chapter 15. Chapter 15 of Revelation verses 2 through 4. Here John says and he has, as he has this vision continuing to see the things that God is making known to him. In verse 2 of chapter 15 he says, And I saw something like a sea of glass mixed with fire. And those who had been victorious over the beast and his image and the number of his name standing on the sea of glass holding harps of God. And they sang the song of Moses, the bondservant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are your works. O Lord God, the Almighty, righteous and true are your ways, King of nations, who will not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name. For you alone are holy, for all the nations will come and worship before you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. Fear God and keep his commandments. The conclusion of all that we find in the book of Ecclesiastes from verse 1 where the preacher says the words of the preacher to what we find him saying there in the 12th chapter. This is it. This is what I've been getting at. Fear God. Fear God. Fearing God involves having a right concept, as Al Martin said so many years ago. It involves having a right concept of God's character. It involves coming to know who God is and what He's like. It involves having this pervasive sense of God's presence that God is always here. This great God of Scripture in His glory, in His magnificence, in His splendor, in His holiness. This great God is here. Doesn't matter where you go. Doesn't matter where you are. God is present. He's here. So this fear involves having a right concept of who God is and what He's like and that He's always present. And one other thing. It involves having a constraining awareness of our obligation to God. What is that? Obey. Obey. And it's true, we can't in of ourselves ever obey Him. We can't do that. But in Christ, our obedience is made perfect. So what are we to do? Cling to Christ. Trust in Christ with all our heart. All of our heart. We, we look to Christ. We don't lean upon our own understanding and our own wisdom. 
But in all of our ways, wherever we go, whatever we do, we acknowledge Him. We acknowledge Him. Fear God. Reverence Him. Respect Him. Stand in awe of God. That word awesome is a word often used in a lot of ways. Perhaps a friend gets a new car, comes and says, I want to show you my new car. Oh, that's awesome. That's awesome. Well, you know how we use that word. But I've come to feel in my own heart that that word awesome is a word that ought never to be used except as it's applied to God. He alone is awesome. He alone should bring us to our face before Him because of His greatness, His splendor, His holiness. Fear God and obey. Let's pray.